according to our Sunday school curriculum, uh, this morning everyone was learning about the temple that Solomon built. Remember, David wanted to build the temple after he became king. And God told David, in effect, I've been living, my glory's been dwelling in this tabernacle, this tent, for all these many years. Not once did I ever complain. See, David said, it's not fair that I, a human king should live in a palace, whereas you live in this tent. And God reminded him, God doesn't live in tents built by human hands. And yet, God did give David instructions to pass on to Solomon the exact measurements of the temple, what it should look like, how many rooms, what, what it should be made of, what things would go into the temple. And of course, all of the Mosaic law, how the sacrificial system would work. And so God does care about these things. And it was a glorious building. Overlaid in gold, you should read about it in your own time this week. Just amazing. What an amazing sight that would be. I, I can barely picture it, but I can see the Temple Mount in my mind, and of course there's no temple there now, but... Imagine this glorious temple overlaid with gold, shimmering in the Middle Eastern sun, with no smog. You'd be able to see this from miles and miles and miles around. Talk about a shining city on a hill. So, we want to look at the temple this morning from the Old Testament perspective and New Testament perspective, and what, what place does the temple have in the Christian's life? It won't be a full treatment of the subject, but I just wanted to get you thinking this morning. When we get to 1 Kings chapter 8, the temple is finished, and they're ready to de- dedicate it to the Lord and bring the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies. And Solomon waited until a day where there was going to be a feast anyway, so all of Israel would be gathering in Jerusalem. We're going to have this huge party. The temple's finished. We'll dedicate it to God. We'll have a great celebration. Been preaching the last few Sundays about happiness, and you know, does God is God happy, and does He want us to be happy? I think we've made a case that the answer is yes. The book that I'm reading points out that in the Mosaic Law, over 30 days of partying were commanded by God. Celebrations, feasts. You add in all the days of rest on the Sabbath. You add in weddings, which lasted... I mean, we had a nice wedding yesterday. It was beautiful, but a Jewish wedding, that's a whole week. You add all that together and the case can be made that almost a fourth of the Jewish life was spent resting, celebrating, partying. I know we have this Western work ethic that says there's something wrong about that. Well, take it up with God. God loves a great party. 
What did Jesus say when one sinner, one lost sheep comes to faith? There's a party in heaven. When the prodigal son came home, there was a party. It was the older brother who said, why are we partying? It's Jesus who attended the wedding feast at Cana and turned water into wine and the kind of wine that people said, now this is the good stuff here. Not to say that Jesus wants us to be drunk. The Bible preaches against that. Only to say that God likes to celebrate. This is good news to my ear. And we have much to celebrate in God and who He is and what He's done. And God wants us to celebrate these things. And so they're going to have the celebration and dedicate the temple. And as they dedicate the temple, God's glory comes and fills the temple. Now you need to understand, this doesn't mean that all of God and all of who He is filled the temple. Nothing can contain all of God and all of who He is and all of His glory. But in some way, that's hard for us to understand, God's glory can fill a particular place at a given time. 1 Kings 8.10, it happened that when the priest came from the holy place, so they brought the ark into the holy place and they came out, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. Remember, in the wilderness, God's glory appeared as a pillar of fire at night, a pillar of cloud during the day. So this, this cloud, Hebrew scholars call it God's Shekinah glory. That's the, the Hebrew word, Shekinah. It filled the place, and it says it was so thick, the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. I have no idea what that looked like, but I would love to have been there. I would love to, if God's glory filled this building so thick, we just had to stop what we're doing and fall to our knees in awe and just worship and soak in His glory and majesty. That would be amazing. That's what I imagine heaven will be like. We'll die and be in the presence of the Lord and experience His glory in ways we could never have imagined. Yet at the same time, even though God's glory was that thick inside the temple, we have to remember God does not dwell in buildings made with human hands. God does not make his permanent dwelling place in buildings made with human hands. 1 Kings 8.27, Solomon goes on to say as, as he's praying a prayer of dedication for the temple, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. The prophet Isaiah echoes these sentiments. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? And Paul in Acts 17, when he's preaching to the Greeks about their idols, their gods, and their, their great temples, many of those temple ruins can be seen today, right? He says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. You might be saying, well, don't we serve God with human hands? Now, Paul means God doesn't need us to feed him and clothe him and, and do these things. It's, it's, God's, it's our privilege that God allows us to minister in his name, but he doesn't, he doesn't need us. He didn't need us to build this building. Really, this building is, yes, it's for God's glory, but it's more for us because we're finite and we need a place to gather and a place not to get rained on, a place to have weddings and, and funerals and awana and Sunday morning worship service. But if, if the building was gone tomorrow, would we cease to be the church? Would we cease to minister to God? Would, would God not meet with us somewhere? So don't get me wrong, I love the building. I love this building. It's a great building God's provided for us. I remember, uh, I've heard the stories of when it was being built, and some people wanted the building to be glorious like we see with the temple and other people wanted more tabernacle-ish because it's God's money and we need to be God's steward. I, I'm, I'm thankful that they went more with the glorious temple look. I think it brings great glory to God and reflects His beauty. And when we look at the temple and how meticulously God wanted that temple built and how beautiful He wanted it to look, to reflect His beauty. But let's not kid ourselves into thinking just because we might have the nicest building in town that this is the strongest or healthiest church or the church most pleasing to God. We know how easily man can look on the outside when God looks on the inside. Let me read a couple of lines from the prayer of dedication here to get an idea of God inspiring Solomon to pray this prayer of dedication, what God wanted the temple to be used for. Let me, um, let me read from 1 Kings 8, 31. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. God's house is a place where God's word and God's law is the final word. A place where there should be justice. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. God's house is also to be a place of mercy then, a place of justice and a place of mercy. Let me skip down to... Verse 41, also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, when he comes from a far country for your namesake, 
For they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place. And do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. The temple, the house of the Lord, is to be a place where the foreigner can come and find peace and find relationship with the true God. Boy, doesn't that fit in well with what we just read and talked about. So then, what is the purpose of the temple? Well, I came up with three main purposes after studying the scriptures and reading commentaries. We put them in these three categories. Number one, the temple was a place for man to dwell with God. It provided a place for man to draw near to God, hoping that through sacrifice and atonement, God would meet man in that place. Man has this understanding that because of our fallenness, we are separated from God And throughout biblical history, throughout redemptive history, God has designated special places where man could come and find God on God's terms. See, we don't tell God what to do and where to meet us. And so the act of coming to the place that God has designated as the meeting place with God humbles us. If we want to know God, then we must meet Him on His terms. God put Adam and Eve in a garden where He could meet with them and walk with them in the cool of the morning on His terms. And when they disobeyed and wanted to dwell with God on their own terms, they lost relationship. They lost being able to dwell in His presence. They were kicked out of the garden and... and The cherubim were put there with the flaming sword and they were not allowed back in. And yet we know that God put a redemptive plan in place. By the time we get to Cain and Abel, we see God has instituted a way for man to come back and meet with God on God's terms through a sacrifice to cover their sins on God's terms. And Abel brought an acceptable sacrifice on God's terms Cain brought a sacrifice on his own terms that was not acceptable to God. And he said, Why are you sad, Cain? Do you not know that if you do what is right, it will go well with you and I will accept you? And this is the story all throughout the Old Testament. God designating a place and a way for man to come back and dwell with God on God's terms. Secondly, the temple was a place to house the mercy seat for the people to bring sacrifices and for the priest to make atonement and intercession. Where do we put the Ark of the Covenant? With the mercy seat, the lid, with the two cherubim on top where their wings touch and the high priest would sprinkle blood on it on the Day of Atonement. And in the wilderness, that was housed in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. 
And so the temple was to replace the tabernacle, and it had a holy of holies, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and the high priest would make atonement for the people. And then intercede for the people. An an intercessor, a go-between, a mediator. That's what the priest's role was. Sinful man, holy God, I need a mediator. And so the temple was the place where the priests lived and, and did their work. And if you wanted that mediation, you had to go to the temple and find the priest, make your sacrifice, and have the priest make sacrifice for you and make intercession for you before God. Thirdly, the temple was designed to display God's glory and draw people of all nations to God. And if you keep reading the story of the temple and when it was finished and how people from all over came to see this wonder and the um, Queen of Sheba came and, and wanted to hear wisdom, uh, Solomon's wisdom and see the temple... I love this section of Scripture. I just I love hearing about... It seemed like everything was firing on all cylinders. And like a little, little taste of heaven was here on earth for a brief time. And so if the temple is that important and it fulfills those functions, then why would God allow the temple to be destroyed? Three different times He allowed the temple to be destroyed. First, during the Babylonian conquest, 587 B.C., you know, when when people from the east came, again, tapping into our missions moment this morning, from their letter, perhaps God is going to chastise and purify His church in the west by bringing people from from the east. He's done it before. Many times. Why should we be any different? Can we really say that our country is a place that is faithful to God? You say, well, then why would God bring people who don't glorify and honor Jesus Christ to do the rebuking and the chastising. This is the way God has always done things. And when He's done using them to rebuke and chastise, then He'll work on them too. We're not saying that the people from the East or Muslims or Hindus are somehow, the fact that they might be flourishing and prospering is proof that God is pleased with them. Sometimes God allows a people group to become numerous and raise them up and make them mighty to come and discipline His people. We know after the exile, the people came back. They rebuilt the temple. It wasn't as glorious as the first temple. In fact, you read in Ezra and Nehemiah that they cried and wept, those who were old enough to remember the original temple. But under the Roman Empire, Herod worked on the temple for over 40 years and made this grand, glorious structure that rivaled Solomon's temple. 
And that's where the people met. And they, they went to go meet with God. And they went to the temple for the mercy seat and to make sacrifices. And the, the temple was so amazing, it did display God's glory, even though Herod did it for his own glory. It drew people from all nations to the temple. So again, the temple was fulfilling its purposes, and then God allowed the temple to be destroyed again in A.D. 70. This time, they took it all the way down to the foundation, stone by stone, brick by brick, and left it desolate like it is today. So when was the third time God allowed the temple to be destroyed? In John 2.19, Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Right? That's preposterous. It's blasphemous. It's, it's ridiculous. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. We know from the book of Hebrews that the original temple was just a picture or a type or a shadow of the greater temple to come. Think about the purpose of the temple. A place for man to dwell with God, God with us. What was Jesus? What is Jesus? Emmanuel, God with us. A place for man to draw near to God, hoping that through sacrifice and atonement, God would meet man in that place. Jesus is that place where God dwells with man. Jesus is the place now where the mercy seat is, so to speak. Where the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat for our forgiveness. His blood. The place where we go for the priest to mediate for us. Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us as believers. We no longer need an earthly priestly mediation system. You do not need to go to an earthly priest and confess your sins and be absolved and then have the priest make intercession for you. From time to time, where appropriate and where necessary... Though we love our Catholic brothers and sisters and Lutheran brothers and sisters, this is where we disagree, and it's a major disagreement. There's no more earthly, priestly mediation system. Jesus was the final sacrifice, the final priest, the the final place where we need to go for forgiveness and to meet with God. You can come and make an appointment with the pastor and confess your sins, and we will help you repent, and we will turn you to Jesus as the author and perfecter of your faith. And we should confess our sins to one another, because the Bible says this is a good thing. But I can't absolve you of your sins. Only Jesus can And you don't need me to mediate for you. I will pray for you and intercede for you, but you, through faith in Jesus Christ, have direct access to the throne of grace. You've got a direct line just like I do. And when I leave this church, it's not like the phone stays here. I can call him anywhere. And so can you. If you... 
you are in Christ. Jesus became the place that displays God's glory and draws people from all nations to God. It is Jesus who said, I will draw all men unto myself. We don't anymore need a glorious earthly temple. Jesus is the true and better temple. His body houses God. His body houses God. And if the if the Christian church is dying in the West and all these churches are disappearing and a lot of churches in Europe are being turned into restaurants and museums and coffee shops and mosques even, and we wonder, how are these people flooding into Europe going to be saved? How are they going to know God if there's no churches? And I was reminded of the story of the woman at the well, John 4.19. Remember in the middle of the day, Jesus went to get water and the woman's at the well in the middle of the day. She didn't want to go in the cool of the morning because she was an immoral woman and certainly didn't want to hear the scorn from other women. So she went in the heat of the day and Jesus met her there, which is rather scandalous for a man to be seen with a a woman in the middle of the day. And he knows her heart because he's God and he's omniscient and knows that the man she's living with isn't her husband and that this is the fifth, fifth or sixth man in her life. And she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You know things about me that no one else would know. And she was a Samaritan and the Jews hated Samaritans and were fearful of them. And when they went from north to south... In Israel, they tried to go around Samaria. And they wouldn't allow Samaritans to come and and worship. She says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Right? We think the church is here, you think the church is there. We think the temple's here, and you think the temple's there. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. See, there doesn't need to be a localized place, a building. True worshipers worship in spirit and truth. True worshipers around the planet, worshiping in underground churches, literally underground in some cases, in tunnels, in caves, in people's homes, and sometimes even in beautiful buildings like this one. And yet there's beautiful buildings that call themselves Christian churches that are maybe filled with people who are far from God and are not meeting God in that place. He's not meeting them. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Just as Jesus was the true and better temple and, and his, He became the temple, because we're being made into the image of God's Son, Paul tells us our bodies become the temple through faith in Christ. 
Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? What's the temple? The place where God dwells with man. If you are in Christ and know Christ as Lord and Savior, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He comes to dwell with you. I'm a church. I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, you're, you're a church. Now we come together corporately because the, the church Jesus is building is built of all believers who profess Jesus Christ as Lord. But in a very real way, you, your body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says it again later in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. We would be saddened if someone came in here and trashed our church and profaned the name of God and, and sinned with impunity right here in our midst. And yet, as far as God is concerned, He's much more concerned with you not doing those things in your body. If God will allow a a building to be destroyed that is as glorious as Solomon's temple, how much more does He care about your body in which His Holy Spirit dwells daily? And some of us are defiling the temple of God. In one sense, when we sin, we're all defiling the temple of God. But many seem to compartmentalize their faith, and when they're here Sunday morning, they're on their best behavior because we're in the house of God, and then they leave these doors and, and do the most terrible, defiling things with their body out there. And then clean up their act again next Sunday morning. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So if we are a temple, then those three purposes of the temple, by extension, must also be fulfilled in us. God dwells with us in our bodies, in temples not made with human hands. The Spirit of Christ in us is the perfect sacrifice and priestly mediator of the new covenant. You, you have the whole Old Testament system, the Old Covenant system now, and the New Covenant, it's all self-contained in you, so to speak. You have Christ, so you have the sacrifice. You have Christ, so you have the mediator. You can boldly approach the throne of grace through Christ. And thirdly, then we are designed to glorify God and draw people to Christ. I'm thankful that people come here and they see our advertisements or they see our webpage or somebody invites them to church and they come and they hear the gospel and they get saved. But it doesn't have to happen that way. You can leave this place. You are a church on two legs, you are mobile. You can go places this building cannot go. This is great encouragement to me. Because as many Christian buildings are closing their doors, 
If 10% of our nation is truly Christian, that's 35 million little churches unleashed into our culture. And by some estimates, there's 3 billion Christians around the planet. And so again, as much as I, I love a place to meet corporately and we should keep this place nice because a lot of great ministry is accomplished here, this isn't, does not have to be the place where people meet God. You can introduce them to God. If you are a true believer, He dwells in you. You can display the glory of the temple out there. In as much as you're obeying Christ and enjoying your salvation and giving glory to God, you become a compelling testimony. You adorn the gospel with your behavior and your attitude. You're the temple. Go be the temple. Ultimately, heaven is the temple of God, the Bible tells us. Where, where is the, the ultimate resting uh, dwelling place of God? Hebrews 9.11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle or temple, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. I want to end with, with a, a hymn most people have never heard. Uh, some of our older saints know this hymn. You ever saw the movie Poltergeist 2? They just ruined this hymn. So I hope you never saw the movie. If you did, just block it out of your mind. It's a beautiful hymn. God is in His holy temple. Earthly thoughts be silent now. While with reverence we assemble and before His presence bow, He is with us now and ever when we call upon His name, aiding every good endeavor, guiding every upward aim. God is in His holy temple in the pure and holy mind, in the reverent heart and simple, in the soul from sin refined. Then let every low emotion banished far and silent be, and our souls in pure devotion, Lord, be temples Worthy Thee. Isn't that beautiful? Let's pray. God, that is our prayer. Make us worthy temples of Thee. What a great mystery, a humbling truth that You would choose to dwell inside sinners. Thank You, Jesus, for cleansing our temple first so Your holiness could dwell within us. May that be even more proof and evidence of the finished nature of your work. For you would not take residence up in a defiled temple. Lord, we know we still lack perfect obedience. That our residual sin nature lingers. But you said on the cross, it is finished. We believe because your word teaches us that by your grace we are completely justified and fit for heaven. You, Almighty God, see us with the righteousness of your Son. 
What an amazing thought. And you send your Spirit to dwell in us and minister through us so we can be the temple, the tabernacle, the church outside these four walls and bring the gospel and bring God to a world in desperate need of a Savior. Remind us of that this week, Lord. May your perfect love cast out all fear. May the truth that you're with us always give us courage. May it encourage us to discipline ourselves and turn from sin and walk in righteousness. Lord, so that others may find you and meet you in each one of these temples here in this room. Thank you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.